Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of For What It's Worth, my new podcast, which has probably little to do with books and photography and a lot to do with just random subjects that I find interesting or worth talking about. I am uh, recording today from deep, deep in the bowels of Orange County, California, the land of tattoos and terracotta. And uh, I've got my trusty Fuji X-T2 next to me on my Feutech gimbal, just in case some sort of photo opportunity breaks out. I'm always prepared. And uh, I'm recording on my trusty Zoom recorder, and I've got a lot to talk about. We are now in the, the time frame of the holiday card, so my mailbox is flooded with friends and family sending cards. Just getting through that is, is enough to, uh, to stifle most of us. So the idea behind this podcast is that there's a lot of things that I have interest in that are outside what I normally talk about or cover here on the site. And in some cases, I've covered and touched on some of these things, but it's, um, I just wanted to break it out a little more in depth. And I started this yesterday with a video podcast. So I had my camera set up, and I was doing the same thing I'm doing now, but with a video camera or my X-T2, basically. And um, I realized there's no real reason to do that, and plus it's logistically much more complicated. You don't need to see me. Uh, there's no real point in that. Everybody knows what I look like. And this is just easier, quicker, more efficient for me to be able to talk and then get things online. So the idea behind this is five topics, sometimes more, completely random, tangential, out of right field. You may agree, you may disagree. It doesn't matter. I just think, think these are things that I find interesting. So we're going to get started right away, oddly enough, with number one. And the first thing I want to talk about is politics. Yeah, so here's the thing. I normally don't talk about politics or religion publicly because I think those are two things that rational people lose the ability to be rational and they just become crazy about it. And I think history has proven that over and over again. But before I talk about politics, the one thing I want to say is I, I'm sort of one of those people. I've been an independent voter my whole life. I sort of detest both parties and I'm really puzzled how anyone can side a hundred percent with either party. Like I think our entire political agenda, our entire political system in the U.S. is so compromised and so corrupted and so inefficient that we have to reinvent it, which will never happen because our public is asleep. That's kind of how I feel about it. And I always feel like voting is always a lesser of two evils. Very rarely in my lifetime have I looked at a political candidate and said, oh, I totally believe this person. I've always looked at political candidates and said, okay, it's the lesser of two evils. And I know that both of these people are compromised. There's no other way they would have gotten to where they are if they weren't compromised. And so I end up voting lesser of two evils. Now, this past election was was unique in my mind for, for a lot of different things, you know. So let's just talk about the Donnie, Donnie, who I'll call Donnie Dipshit. So, you know, here we have a guy who is clearly a pathological liar who has spent his entire adult life enriching himself at the expense of other people. He has surrounded himself with a bevy of crooks that are unparalleled in the history of American politics, right? And that includes his cabinet and his family. It's like every day is an, an, a, sun, a sunrise and another investigation. In my, in my opinion, he just seems like a typical, maybe atypical career white-collar criminal who's been doing this stuff for so long. And the lying part, too, like I heard a... Uh, federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor say, you know, they were asking him why he would lie about, you know, obviously if you're being investigated and you're trying not to go to jail or be indicted, you might lie to try to get out of it. But he's lying about everything. And the prosecutor said, look, he's been doing it his entire life. He just doesn't know any better. But here's my point. 
we knew who Donnie Dipshit was long before he became president. He has a very public track record that if you had any interest at all, you could have easily looked up. I find two things really surprising, but there's probably more than two, but I'm going to talk about two. Number one is prior to him winning the nomination, the Republicans he's surrounded by now hated the guy. They were like, he's unfit, he's a racist, he's a criminal, he's a punk, there's no possible way, he has no government experience, there's no possible way. The second he wins the nomination, these same people toss out every policy that they claim is associated with the Republican Party and immediately hitch their wagons to Trump. And to me, they, them turning their backs on what he's saying and doing is the criminal offense. That, to me, is like, wow. If that doesn't prove how bought and paid for our politicians are, and again, I'm pointing the finger at both parties. I'm pointing more at the Republicans right now because they're the ones in power, and they, their boy's in the White House, even though he's not their boy. He's their temporary boy. So the, the Paul Ryans and Mitch McConnells and Grassleys and Warren, uh, Warren Hatch and all these guys who are just like, well, I don't care what he does or says, you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to back him no matter what. That just to me, that's an insult to all of us as Americans. Okay, I have a second point in, in, oh yeah, my second point on politics. So surprised at how quickly the Republicans abandoned their policies and morals and sided with Trump. And secondly, our government the Justice Department really lacks bite. You know, there's no, who's, it's like the, the fox watching the hen house. Like, who is really in power here? Who is the, where are the checks and balances? And two, and a friend of mine, someone who's way smarter than I am, came, was here the other night, and he said to me, the fact that you can't indict a sitting president is so counterintuitive to what our country was founded on in the first place of why we have the Bill of Rights, why we have the Constitution, was like, hey, we do not want a king. We do not want a king. We want checks and balances. And again, that just seems to have been tossed out the window. And then you realize, oh, well, I guess we can indict a sitting president. And oh, well, I guess all these investigations that are happening, we can totally shut those down if we want. Like, you know, just get rid of those. It's really remarkable. What this whole, the two, and a, the two years of Trump has proven to me is how our government is a house of cards. Like, scarily a house of cards. This is sort of a terrifying moment. And it's probably going to get a lot worse uh, before it gets better. I was going to say it's entertaining, but it's not because it's pathetic. The pathetic part of it outweighs the entertaining part of it. Okay, moving on. Point number two, webinars. So I do a monthly webinar for Blurb, which I really like doing. And one of the reasons why I like doing it is that the people who call in on these webinars, not call in, tune in, they come from all over the world. The first thing I do on the webinars is I say, do me a favor, let's make sure the chat is working. So basically chat in from where you are and people are chatting in from all over the world. That's a really cool thing to me. It really shows the diversity of where uh, Blurb's audience is and also the diversity of skill level. So you have beginners and you have people who are much more accomplished in terms of bookmaking. But I have questions for you, which is, do you listen to webinars? And if you don't, why don't you listen to webinars? And if you do, what do you consider a good webinar? What topics do you want to see, and what do you want to learn from a webinar? And let's filter this through the Blurb uh, ecosystem, right? So there's a lot of things that I know about Blurb and that I use with Blurb and how I basically strategize with the platform that I take for granted because I've been around it for so long. And a lot of other people don't. They don't know. 
and they just haven't used it enough, or they maybe know a version of Blurb from the late two, you know, 2008, 9, 10, or whatever, and they don't realize things like offset printing, custom printing, magazines, trade book, all these different things that I always run into people that say, oh yeah, I know all about Blurb, and then I start questioning them, and I realize they really don't know much. So if you were to design a webinar series about ingesting Blurb, what do you want to see? What do you want to hear? What do you want to know? So personally, I think to successfully use Blurb, I have to go way sort of out into the ether in terms of capturing images, editing images, sequencing images, long before you even get to the Blurb ecosystem. So for me, one of the things that I see holding people back is that if you're not a super skilled photographer, you'll say you're an enthusiast and you're gung-ho and you go out and shoot 5,000 images a day, that's not necessarily a good thing. And that's definitely not a good thing if it's come, when it comes to making a book because if you shoot 5,000 images a day, you have to be one badass editor to edit that down to book length material. So if you go from 5,000 images and you edit to 2,500 and you tell me you've made an edit, that's not an edit. You know, an edit is what are the 50 best images, what are the 25 best, and what's your single best image? And people go, well, that's impossible. And I say, no, it's not impossible. That's called editing. And that used to be very much a part of the photo education uh, sequence wherever you studied photography is you had classes that just focused on editing. So when I think about webinars, I think about talking about capturing, photographing, and then editing and then sequencing. And then we start the webinars about like software and using the Blurb software and all that kind of stuff. But just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So comment, whatever. Message me. Send me a letter. Okay, three projects. I have three new projects. One I've already mentioned on the site before and written about, which is my collaboration with Australian book designer Chloe Ferris. That is coming along. That should be very interesting. We're going to try to do a custom offset book of some sort. Uh, the second one is a personal project called uh, Birds of Prey, which I've been working on now for several months, and it's a combination of three things. There's a tech angle, a human angle, and a landscape angle. And then in addition, I'm going to write a movie script that portrays three characters who all find themselves at the same place, roughly, at the same time for three entirely different reasons. And each reason will correspond with one of the tech-human uh, landscape features of the visual side. And then I'll probably do like 25 copies. That'll, I'm guessing right now is a blurb, eight by 10 photo book with a soft cover and proline uncoated paper. So I'm saving money on the cover, but I'm spending more on the paper. And then the book will be modified so that the reader will have to sort of jump through a very specific hoop to be able to read what's in the book. So it's all part of my master plan. This is one of the most uh, entertaining projects I've ever done. I cannot wait to keep shooting on it. Um, again, I have no goal with this. I'm not trying to tell people, hey, look at my photography or anything. It's just fun. This is a way that I like to pass the time. Third project is a new collaboration, which I'm not going to start talking about yet, but it is going to blow your socks off. This is like something unlike anything I've ever done before, partnering with a company that I've never partnered with and a company that's from a totally different industry. And it's about a specific publication. We are going to be accepting submissions. We're going to be blah, 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 blah. This is going to be fantastic, and I'll talk more about that when I can. Okay, point number four, books. Had a, met someone in Santa Fe a couple of years ago. I have a rule. When I'm in Santa Fe, if I see the same person three times in the same day, which is very possible in Santa Fe, it's small. If I see the same person three times, I introduce myself, regardless of whether or not I know them. I just go, well, look, if I've seen you three times in one day, I, I should know you. So a couple years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I see a guy on a bike, 
cycling, good cyclist, climbing. And then I see him somewhere else in town that day. And then I see him at the co-op. And I'm like, that's it. Three times I walk up. I said, hey, I think I'm supposed to know you. That launches a friendship. And he's somebody I've gotten to know a little more, a little more over the years. And then recently we had a chance to like really sit down and have multiple conversations. And let me tell you something. It is, I have totally have a man crush. It is rare when I meet someone that is sort of my pseudo counterpart. Like he's a clone of me in some ways, better in a lot of other ways. But here's a guy who, you know, left home at 18 and said, I have questions about the world and traveled until he was 30 out there in the world, like taking notes and, and traveling around the world, talking to gurus and, and educated folks and saying, what do you think about the world? Why do you believe that? How do you feel kind of thing? So I met him and my immediate thought after meeting him was that he was the Larry Darrell character in a book called The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham, which is one of my all-time favorite books and one that I reread every year. And I said to him, God, have you ever read that book? And he looked at me and kind of tilted his head and said, I read that book when I was younger, but I need to read that again. So he did. And we, he called me last, uh, last week and we talked for over an hour. And it's one of those things where I was like, holy cow. This, it's rare when I meet someone who listens, who speaks so slowly and so eloquently with thought behind his words. And that shouldn't be such a rare occurrence. And I'm not knocking all of us. I'm not knocking human humanity. Most of us are so overworked. We have so many details up in the air that conversations are often almost a relief of getting things off your chest of like, okay, I've got a drop-down menu of items I need to get through. And you're basically waiting for the other person to stop talking. And you're not really listening. You're just like waiting for them to stop talking so you can get through your information that you want to spill out. Talking to this guy, total opposite. But it brought up this concept of the razor's edge. I'm a reader, as you know. I love to read. I do every morning, somewhere between 50 and 80 books a year, typically. And uh, he is too. And so we riffed on this book for a long time. And I think the book, if you're not a reader and you want to be, or if you are and you've never read this book, start now. Just go get a, get a copy of The Razor's Edge and read it. I think it's unlike any book that Ma never did. And it's really good. And it's, I think, a metaphor for a lot of things that are happening in the world today. I think each character represents a pretty sizable demographic in our world. Absolutely worth your time. Okay, point number five. Facebook. Holy shit. Another week. Another lie. What will it take for the population to leave this platform? Holy cow. I, every week you realize that what they said the week before is a lie. And here, once again, I'm going to go back to our Justice Department. Facebook and Zuckerberg and the VP and all these other people who've testified in front of Congress, they are untouchable. They are so powerful and so big, and they are operating in an environment, in a field that our Congress, because of their age and their disconnect with the public, they don't even understand. And that was so evident when he testified in front of the Congress, and they were asking questions that, like, my nieces, you know, my five- and six-year-old nieces would ask, or my five- and six-year-old nieces, in some cases, knew far more information than our Congress did. That was amazing. I think the crisis, what's happening with Facebook, and I think the Euros are going to lead the charge here because they're seriously ticked off, um, and they have all the data from inside Facebook, which, of course, you know, our judge tried to seal. And, and this is the octopus, right? I mean, the mafia was often referred to. In Italy, the mafia was often referred to as the octopus, like they had their tentacles in everything. That's how Facebook is. 
Facebook is so corrupted and so involved in so many different facets of your life with data being the core driving issue. It shows no matter what comes out about them, you know, they're targeting anti-Semitic stuff towards people. They're lying about this. They're sharing information and lying and getting caught. It's just chronic serial lying about what they're actually doing and why they're doing it. It shows how addictive the platform is, especially to people who have so little going on in their life. They don't actually have an actual life. They have an online Facebook phony life. You know, and here's the, here's the kicker to this. Before you go thinking I'm some sort of ant, you know, saint here, I'm on Instagram, right? I'm not on Instagram because I want to be. I'm on Instagram because Blurb asked me to go on there probably, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And I was on there for six months and then didn't post for a year just to see what would happen. Now I'm back on it again. Obviously, they're owned by Facebook. I'm part of the problem. If you're on Instagram, you're part of the problem. And it's amazing to me that the disinformation and the disservice that this platform has done to our culture, the world society, and to veil it under this idea of like connecting people, which obviously is not the reason they're doing this. And yet to still hold to that when I see Zuckerberg being interviewed, I'm, I just, I, I can't look, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, man, I just don't believe you anymore. It, the, the track record is just, you know, like someone at Congress, I forget who it was, said, look, you lied to us the first time and you're like, okay, maybe they made a mistake. The second time, uh-uh, shows intent, like I don't believe you anymore. So what's next? That's my, my question coming out of this, is what's post-Facebook Instagram? Because you know something is coming. The odd part is I've run into a couple of Instagrammers recently who are very successful Instagrammers, right? And I am not, and I never will be, and I have no interest in it. But I'm intrigued why they're successful and, and if they like it and whatever. Two of the people that I spoke to who were very successful said, I'm done, I'm out, I hate this, it's phony, um, I'm changing my career and I'm going to move back home and do something else for a living. And I was like, whoa. And then both of those people, I said, hey, what's next? Like for the person who loves Instagram and wants to make sure that they're up on the curve on the next platform, what is it? Like how do you get in? And nobody knew. They all said, I have no idea. No idea what's coming. And I look at that and think, holy cow, that's an op for somebody. That's some kid out there right now. Please, some kid, if you're listening, uh, make something that's transparent, that is not as addictive, that is more about the collective whole as opposed to like sitting alone in the dark at home um, talking to fake friends. That, that, that's just like ready, re just ready to end in my opinion. The thing for me is what I realized a couple of, couple of days ago is I don't find... Instagram interesting. I, I don't, I mean, I'm following people who I really know are talented, who in real life, when I see them in person, I go, yeah, I like this person and their work is good and they have a track record and a history. I don't want to engage with them through Instagram. It diminishes who they are, what they've done. And then even if I see something I like, Right behind it is 5,000 other pictures or at more than more likely advertising. It's just company after company after company. And you're like, okay, so I'm getting barraged by ads from companies of stuff I don't need. And they're selling my data to people that I really don't want my data sold to. And like, why the hell am I on here? And it's strange to me that the creative industry has put so many eggs in one basket. Like if I see another agent or rep or agency telling photographers, oh, if you're a photographer, you have to be on Instagram. No, you don't. You do not, do not believe anybody in the creative world who tells you you have to do X, Y, and Z. The history of the creative world is built on creative revolutionaries, pioneers. These are the once in a generation people that come along and just invent something new. That is who you wanna be. 
are you going to become a successful Instagrammer now at this point? I don't think so. I think Instagram's hit the tipping point. I think it's only going to go down from here and you better be, you better have something more than following on Instagram because when that music stops, there are going to be millions of people looking for chairs that are not there. And if your work is entirely on Instagram or it's a content shaped towards satisfying an Instagram audience, you're dead in the water. There is no way that translates to what's coming next. I wish I knew what was coming next. Okay, finally reaching the 20-minute point here. And I know I'm not supposed to do long files, but guess what? I'm going to do them anyway. Now, number six, totally unrelated. I love cycling. Love it. I have been dreaming about a bike tour, a long, long bike tour. Now, a couple of problems with that. One, I have a full-time job. That's more than full-time. It's like a part of my life. So it's blend together everywhere I turn, everywhere I go, there's work. So I don't have time to do this now. Um, I would have to either get fired or get laid off or resign, which I do not want to do. Actually, I don't want any of those things to happen. I love my job. But cycle touring is going to be part of my future for sure. The other problem is my wife, not sure she's going to be 100% into that. I think she, my wife's a gamer. She wants to go regardless of what's happening. So she will want to go, but I will have to significantly change the style of touring that I'm doing, which is fine. Maybe I can jet out and do my own thing here and there and then tour with her as well. Um, yesterday I was on a site called Bomb Track Bicycles. Uh, I didn't know anything about Bomb Track Bicycles, but I found a YouTube film about a guy named Mark Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R, German, very German. And he was doing this insane ride through the Pamir Mountains, which I immediately saw and said I would go today if I could do that. Um, anyway, Bomb Track looks very similar to the bike I'm riding, which is a Salsa Fargo Titanium, which I absolutely love. It's the most fun bike I've ever had. There are things about it I would change. If you're looking at a bike like this and you're looking at Salsa, I would consider just getting the frame set and doing the build on your own. I bought the complete bike. Because uh, I have no idea how to work on bicycles. I just love to ride them. And so there are things about it I like and things I don't like. Uh, but now, when I bought the Fargo, which was years ago, there were not many bikes like this in the world, basically. I mean, an advent drop bar adventure touring bike was like, you know, you went to a bike shop, even the, the, the shops that were supposed to sell salsa, and they were just like, no, you don't want that bike. They would try to sell you something, you know, something else that was the wrong size or the wrong, you know, the bike that only took 25 millimeter tires or whatever. And you're like, dude, I want this adventure touring bike. So it was, it was, a, it was a problem getting the bike. Um, the shop who sold it to me was not good. Um, they assembled it wrong. I had to take the whole thing apart and take it to my bike shop who reassembled it. And it was just a terrible buying experience. Fast forward to today. Um, you have so many options. I mean, even the mainstream, the biggies, the Trex and Specialized are making tons of these adventure touring bikes. Bikepacking has exploded. If you don't know about a site called bikepacking.com, phenomenal website. Not only in terms of logistics and real-world data that you can use on these bikepacking trips, but the, the, some of the people who founded this site are decent photographers, and there's some really solid work on there in terms of like giving you an idea of what these trips are like. Um, I look at bike touring not as necessarily a selfish endeavor, which in some ways it is, uh, but I also look at it as potentially a huge shift in how people are going to travel in the future. This would be my dream, would be to be involved in this somehow, because when you look at fossil fuel and you look at public transportation in the U.S., et cetera, these are all, I mean, our transportation system sucks. I think that's the technical description. It sucks. And two, 
fossil fuels is going to be going away. We're going to be switching to electric and solar and all that stuff, which is really cool. That's a topic for another day. But cycling, we have so much opportunity for cycling in the U.S. that gets squandered. And it's squandered in many ways because people are lazy and they're selfish, right? So they buy SUVs and they drive five-mile trips to their – drive their kids to school. And everybody has an excuse for why they do this. And look, I'm, I got a Tacoma, Toyota Tacoma 4x4 sitting in the driveway, right? So again, I'm part of the problem. Now, that truck sits – um, unless I'm doing road trips somewhere. So today I have a lunch, I'll be walking. I do some shopping afterwards, I'll be on my bike. So I try to compensate on foot and on bike. Uh, but I'm still part of the problem. I'm burning, you know, my, I drive 25, 30,000 miles a year. That's a problem. So if I didn't have that ability, my life would change dramatically, right? So if I needed to go to Santa Fe, I don't hop in my truck and 13 hours later I'm there. I would either have to go, okay, look, I got to take a train. I got to ride my bike to the train, or I ride my bike from Costa Mesa to Santa Fe, which I will do at some point. But anyway, my point behind this is if you don't know about bicycle touring and adventure touring this, and bikepacking, this is a really, really cool industry. Sure, there's a lot of waxed mustaches and flannel and you know stuff like that. There's always the caricatures that, are, that arise from these, these genres. I'm totally fine with that. I love all these people because they have a love of bicycling. And there's some super smart people in this industry, there are some really talented people. There's some great content creators. I mean, if you look at this film about the German guy riding through the Pamirs, um, that's a beautiful film. There's a shit, shit ton, that's the official scientific designation, a shit ton of drone footage, which I get a little tired of. But the, you know, the interviews, the idea of where he's riding, you, know, you don't want to get lost in the content of the film. You want to get lost in this idea of what this guy's doing. And... Uh, for those of you who think, like, you know, there's no way I could possibly do that, I don't agree. There are a few of you out there are probably going to have limitations or physical things that would maybe uh, deny you the ability to do this, but you can do a version of it that fits who you are and what your desires are. That could be an overnight. That could be riding to the park in your own town and sleeping out overnight. Whatever. Whatever fits your, your passions. So uh, I will have one of these tours in my future. Every time I ride, and one of the reasons, I have a road bike as well, but one of the reasons I ride the Salsa all the time, and I have different wheel sets, so I have tires that are slicks on it right now, two-inch um, Continental slicks, and then I've got knobbies and stuff as well, is one, it's the most fun bike. Two, it's titanium, so it soaks up a lot of the vibration in the road. I always thought that was total bullshit because titanium bikes typically are really expensive. You know, brands like Seven and Moots, which are made in the U.S., are the most gorgeous bikes you've ever seen, but they're insanely expensive. I could never afford them, which is one of the reasons why I went with the Salsa, which is manufactured in Taiwan, I want to say. At least it was. And I always thought that the that titanium, the ride quality and all that that you hear, you're like, okay, whatever, until I rode it. And I'm like, holy cow. So you can ride 50 miles and get off and not feel like you've been on a bike ride. It's that smooth. And one of the reasons I ride that bike all the time, even when I'm cycling with other cyclists who are road cyclists, is because, one, it's fun. But two, that's the bike that I'm going to disappear on. And so I just want to be as comfortable with that bike as I possibly can. That is unless I sell it and get something newer. Oh, did I say that? No, never. I would never do that. I'm perfectly content with what I have. <clears throat> anyway, like I said, I was on the bomb track site yesterday. No, I'm kidding. Um, I don't have any plans to sell this bike. It's um, because the bike itself is far beyond my cycling ability. That's the, the sad reality. Like I can do 50 miles now without really any kind of planning or whatever. And I can ride, I guess, relatively fast for doing 50 miles on a bike like that. But in terms of the stratosphere of cycling, I'm not even on the scale. Uh, 
like there are people in my neighborhood who could ride circles around me. You know, if you gave them a beach cruiser, they would beat me in the 50 mile range. So I have no illusions of being some sort of magical rider. I just love the bike. I think it's one of the most important inventions the world has ever seen. And I think we have yet to come even remotely close to tapping the potential of what we as a culture and society could do. Yes, we have the Portlands of the world, the long beaches of the world, cities that have said, look, this is an important part of our, our present and will be even more important in the future. But for every Portland, uh, you, have a, you have a Los Angeles or you have a Newport Beach that has just no interest whatsoever in turning this place into a cycling mecca. They just don't get it because the people in charge of the policies don't ride bikes. They live in gated communities. They're wealthy people driving fancy cars. And the bureaucracy in a place like California, just the insurance alone to create bike trails is so staggering and bureaucratic, it makes your head spin. So I have no hope that this will happen probably in my lifetime. But if we can plant the seeds now, then maybe our kids and our grandkids, if I had kids and grandkids, hypothetically play along, uh, the world might be a better place for them. So that's this issue of for what it's worth. If you've listened this far, you are a glutton. And uh, I hope that you'll listen to the next one. So get back to me with some of these thoughts, especially the webinars. Uh, talk to me if you've read The Razor's Edge. Tell me what it would take for you to quit Facebook. And if you've been on a bike tour, let me know because then I'll be jealous and I'll try to, you know, keep you from listening in future to make myself feel better. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in for what it's worth, episode one, and I'll see you next time.